This episode is brought to you by the generosity of our listeners. This is the largest group of people we've seen in this category by a large measure uh, since really World War II. That's John Griffith, former Target senior executive turned humanitarian leader on this episode. Put your faith to work. This is the Bold Idea Podcast with ideas, interviews, and inspiration to bring your bold ideas to life. Here are your hosts, Larry Gates and Armin Asadi. Well, welcome to another episode of the Bold Idea Podcast. I'm your co-host, Larry Gates. Along with Armin Asadi. We're so glad you're here to put your faith to work and to bring your bold ideas to life. This is the Bold Idea Podcast, and we are set, aren't we, Armin? We are. Just another rock solid. That's right. I think this is going to be one of those heart piercing episodes. No doubt. If you ever want an episode that's going to make you put your faith to work or at least have to exercise your faith in some way or process it in some way, this might be the topic. Yeah. And we like to try to get a little bit outside our own comfort zone. And I can tell for me that it, uh, this interview uh, did some of that as well. We are speaking with John Griffith. Now, John is the head of global operations for the American Refugee Committee, an organization over 2,500 people improving the lives of 3 million refugees each year. He's the past commissioner of the Minnesota Sports Facility Authority, who had the privilege and the honor, I think, and a lot of hard work to bring the U.S. Bank Stadium to build that, uh, home of Super Bowl 52. Unfortunately, our beloved Vikings weren't in the Super Bowl. (laughs) Right, I know, Armin. But uh, John also served as the Executive Vice President of Property Development at Target Corporation, where he oversaw just a... meager three billion dollar budget no big deal and 3500 employees that's how i balance my checkbooks needless to say john is a seasoned seasoned veteran executive and we're so honored to have him on the program john welcome to the bold idea podcast fantastic uh, so honored to uh have a chance to be a part of it oh we're, we've been looking forward to this armin and i have and armin has a special place in his heart for this topic because he's a former refugee himself well, I don't know. Do you ever say former refugee? I mean, I don't know if you can be former. No, that's yeah. what I'm thinking. Maybe you never can be. But. Once you're in, you're always in. Yeah, yeah, basically. I hope not to be former. Yeah. All right. So, so John, let's start here. Your website says that we're facing a challenging global humanitarian crisis. So what's the crisis? Spell it out for us. What's the crisis? Uh, I'm trying to, to boil it down into, I, I guess, at its root core. It's a crisis of a lack of love, right? Um, but the way that that manifests itself in the humanitarian space in dealing with refugees is you literally have millions of people, um, probably you know, estimates anywhere from 60 to sometimes as high as 70 million people that are either refugees, meaning they are um, outside their home country, or they are IDPs, which are internally displaced people, which are literally the millions of people that are being forced out of their home. They may not leave their country of origin, but they are clearly refugees in that instance. So we treat them both equally. Um, And um, this is the largest group of people we've seen in this kind of category um, uh, by a a large measure uh, since really World War II. Well, tell us, how did the American Refugee Committee begin and when did it start? Um, it's a fantastic uh, uh, story uh, started by a, a businessman in um, Chicago, uh, and he was uh, um, 
had a couple of businesses, and somehow he ended up at a uh, a function and heard about back then the uh, uh, crisis in Cambodia uh, that was happening. And this goes back to the uh, late '60s and early '70s. And he decides, wow, this is really a tragic situation. Um, and um, he, on his way out, he uh, agrees to sponsor a couple of uh, children and send money and, and, you know, that kind of thing. And he went, went back about his work and he, uh, um, uh, literally it was like a couple of months later, he got a phone call from the immigration department at O'Hara International Airport. Now, obviously this is back in the 70s, so things were very different back then. But the phone call came from the, uh, um, uh, the uh, official and said, we have your two children here to, ready for you to come pick up. <laughs> Whoa! Yeah, yeah, and like, he was like, "I didn't know I had kids." <laughs> wait, wait, wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Um, so, long story short, he was quickly immersed into uh, how desperate the situation was, and he ended up from that experience building this uh, company to uh, really try to get more children sponsorship going on and things of that nature, and he called it the American Refugee Committee. Well, it began to take so much of his time that um, it was pulling him away from what he was meant to do, which to run his businesses. And so he decided to stand up a, uh, um, a full-time director and you know, make a, uh, a, a nonprofit out of it. And um, so they started interviewing for the job, and they found the perfect candidate. And it's just that he lived in Minneapolis, and he said, I'm not moving. And so uh, the founder said, no problem, we'll move the company to you. And that's how it ended up in Minneapolis. Um, but uh, our work has always been built around not, um, you know, um, bringing refugees to America and getting them, you know, uh, turning them into citizens. Our work has always been about being on the front lines in the field, really focused in what we would call fragile states, where they're just places that you know you're you're feeling really good if the if the lights turn on if you even have a light to turn on but you know they're just very very fragile environments and so that's where where we meet them that's where we greet them and that's where we try to engage with them in a way that uh, tries to reinstill their dignity you know this is a these are people that they're uh, you could clearly make an articulate argument that they are the most vulnerable people on the planet. Mm. They well, have so Where are some of these fragile zones that you're describing? So, you know, great example would be like uh, um, South Sudan, you know, war-torn, very, very difficult. We have people flowing back and forth between South Sudan and Uganda on a daily basis. Um, you know, in Myanmar, you look at what's going on with the Rohingya crisis, crisis there, and the, um, the Burmese pushing them back up into Bangladesh. Bangladesh saying, "Hey, we really don't want these people." And uh, you know, so um, you see issues there. We're in Uganda, Rwanda. We're doing work down in Congo. Um, uh, we're up in Sudan. Uh, we're doing work in Jordan right now with a lot of the Syrians coming uh, um, out of Syria. Uh, and um, we're doing uh, work in Pakistan as well. That's less with IDPs, and it's more about just out-of-school children. It's an education program there. But still, but, but the common factor, you know, you, you just see, you come again and again and again. It's just that, that evil has a place in this world, and um, 
uh, and it, it this lack of love for just a fellow human being is is uh, it's extraordinary, and it's and it's quite broad. Mm. So when you guys see something happening, like a, a displaced people that are trying to leave their country to seek. Uh, shelter and ultimately, like you said, love. They're looking for for care and they're looking for a place of belonging. How does the ARC come in and and help them do that? Sure. Um, the uh, the broader efforts are are really ca- kind of quarterbacked, if you will, by the United Nations, and they have a, a very large separate department called the United Nations High Council for Refugees. And so the UNHCR um, is involved in bringing all of the ARC-like companies uh, to bear on a problem and, and through their use of uh, their wallet, guiding our activities in trying, trying to, in a, in a cohesive way that tries to address as many of the, the needs as possible. Um, you know, most of these situations, when this happens, it it can happen in in very short periods of time, right? I mean, um, in Uganda, we're working with South Sudanese that in in a, um, it would have been uh, June of 2016. There was just typical rural villages there. By November there were uh, 250,000 people that just had literally walked across the border. And there's nothing up there. There's no infrastructure. There's no sewer. There's no water. There's no capacity to grow crops. There's, when, you, when you have people that are that big, you know, a mass of people that way, you know, they're just sort of eating their way into a situation. And so all of the um, host community that has been there and have been making a life, you know, they're, they are literally overrun with the needs of 250,000 people. Hmm. And so then the worldwide community uh, acting mostly through uh, the UN come in and, and begin to build capacity for these people to uh, uh, try to stabilize. Yeah, it's got to be especially challenging for third world countries to deal with their neighbors where there might be a flood of refugees seeking to cross the borders. We even heard about how difficult it was for Europe to absorb a lot of the refugees from the Middle East, for instance. Right. There's no question about it. And it's, um, you know, and and it's, it's a funny thing. Um, you, when you're in this business, you, you clearly understand the logical, fair, uh, just compelling arguments as to why a, a country shouldn't have to deal with refugees coming into their borders. I get it, um, but by the same token, it's you can't you can't not do it. You know, it it is it is it is a reality that that visits you as a host country and you just have to make the best of it because they, otherwise these people are going to die by the hundreds of thousands. There's a lot of stuff in the news right now and you don't know what's true, what's false, what's skewed, what's manipulated. Mm-hmm. So you being the guy who is in this every single day and seeing it from a global perspective, 
What is the most common fallacies you see in the news? Uh, most common fallacies you see are um, the condition of the people themselves. Um, I think it makes for good news stories to take pictures of little kids with distended bellies, with flies crawling all over their eyes, and um, and five or six of them alone that are barely clothed, and you know that that makes a great news story. My reality is that when I go to those places, I see children that light up with gigantic smiles that come running over that that mm. that love it when you pick them up. And you know, hold them just uh, just to recognize their humanity for yeah. a minute. And um, if you could feel that, if you could if you could see that, you all of a sudden this this massive crisis it has a name, and it's and it's his name is Saeed. and. Uh, he just wants to be loved, you know. What are we missing? I mean, there's a lot of conversations going on, but what what is our, what is the, especially in America, what what, what are we missing in this conversation? Because clearly just you talking about it, it has a very deep impact on you. And for the rest of us talking about it, they're just debate points, but yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's just a debate. <clears throat> I think the biggest thing is that the, is that the problem is so large, it's so pervasive that um, you. Uh, I, I, we had a pastor a few years ago at our church who who delivered a sermon series, and and he called it uh, "Poverty Has a Name" and it's Deborah, and it was a series of like eight or nine sermons about dealing with poor and. And until you make it a personal connection, it's just easy to talk about numbers. It's easy to see a picture of a bunch of people on a boat. Um, and you kind of go, wow, that's really sad. Okay, are we ready for the basketball game now? <laughs> and, but then if, if you knew that, that Saeed was on that boat because you'd talked to him and you, and you knew him and you had a relationship with him and – You'd be thinking, what basketball game? I'm just hoping that the news is on long enough that I can identify him and see him getting safely off the boat onto the shore. And and I think that's that's the the issue is that we've because of the enormity of the problem, we've lost the ability to connect on a personal basis. And and what news that you do get is, I mean, sometimes it is really, really bad, okay? It's bad stuff that's going on, but it is just so sensationalized. It's like every reporter is trying to be the first one to wade across the, you know, the infested waters and get to somebody with a microphone and say, you know, look at what is happening here today. You know, it's just like, um, yeah, it's just, it, but developing a personal relationship with someone, I mean, like you, who has had to go through this. I mean, it just, it's just a completely different perspective. How do you help people in America to see the individual? And maybe not you, maybe ARC in general, but how do, how do you guys take something so big 
and zoom in enough so that the world at large can see the Saeed. Yeah. Um, we do, um, we do a variety of things along that front, everything from, you know, arranging donor trips for people who can, who want to have that kind of an experience all the way to, um, even if you attend our gala, uh, once a year, you're, you're going to get a very, very real feel, um, because we will bring them to you of who these people are, what they've had to go through, what they've had to live through. And you can't, you can't walk away from that interaction and just say, Oh, it's time to go to the basketball game. You know, it's, 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 it moves you. And, and, um, and that is our hope above and beyond anything is our, our CEO talks about saying that, that we exist for the everyday person in America to connect them to this issue to the furthest corners of the earth. That's, that's what we're here for. And so, you know, um, that when that happens, you're, you're kind of hooked because you just, you just understand so many different pieces of it. I mean, it's, it is, it is such a complex issue. It is so, uh, that there is the, the other thing, I think we in America, we like to pride ourselves on being, you know, MacGyver-like and, and crafting ingenious solutions to things and fixing a problem and, and so on and so forth. And some of these things you just can't fix. Mm. But you, you, it doesn't mean then that you say, oh, we can't fix it, so let's just stop sending uh, aid to Africa. Yeah, do you think that that's maybe in our political climate today that that's more of a pronounced position that – you know, we should be really attending to the things that we can fix. We should be attending to our own stuff. Um, we have our own issues to address over here. Why are we pouring money into other countries and other people? They don't have a direct national interest, so to speak. Right. Um, do you think that it's more pronounced now than it was, say, 20 years ago? Yeah, but I don't, I don't, uh, I don't think it's a Trump thing or anything like that. I, I, I just think that it is... Uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it again gets back to this lack of personal connection to the situation. Now it's, it's like, you know, I'm going to make this story up, but let's say there's, you know, there's Charlie, he's got a wife and two kids and he just got laid off at the North Carolina furniture factory. His father worked at that factory. His grandfather worked at his factory and Charlie's the last one to finally get laid off before they've moved. Now they're complete manufacturing operation down to Mexico. And he has watched, you know, uh, you know, billions of dollars flow into Mexico. He has seen bad people come across the border and do bad things to us here. And now he's even had to give up his livelihood. And it's, and he's just like, you know what? I'm a little sick of this. This is really messed up. And I, I I need some help here. I need help. And I don't begrudge him that. I, I can't. I haven't had to live through Charlie's, you know, view on the world, and I would wholly support the way he feels. The 
the situation that you have in Africa, that you have in, uh, you know, in, in Burma and Bangladesh, um, you literally, if you say, okay, Charlie, you're right, we're just going to stop doing all that stuff. There's, there's multiple impacts from that. Number one, uh, millions of people die. Number two, it will likely cost you much, much more in blood and treasure in the future than it will right now. And so you're balancing this very difficult need of addressing Charlie as best you can, but helping them understand really what's going on on the other side of the planet. And you're, and you're, unfortunately, the way that things happen communicatively today is, you know, you're doing that in a 25-second soundbite at uh, 10, 10 o'clock news, you know. Right. Explain how that happens. How, does, how, how do we sacrifice more blood and treasure if, if we don't? Well, um, yeah, usually all that happens is the people that are creating these problems are bad people. They're, they're, just, um, they're just big thugs. And you can, you can name, name them ISIS, you can name them uh, Al-Shabaab, you can name them a lot of things. But they're just big thugs that are fighting to take advantage of a situation and advantage of people. And, um, and left uh, alone those big thugs gain more territory, gain more power, gain more resources, um, and become, you know, at some point in time, become a North Korea. And um, you will have to deal with them sooner or later. The longer you wait, the more expensive and bloody it becomes. Wow. So in, in our world, there's obviously, and by our world, I mean America, you hear a lot of charged opinions in the news, um, polarizing those who think we should build a wall or open doors. How do you think, and, and, and this is a two-part question, as a country we should respond and as Christians we should respond? Wow, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, well, I don't think um, that, that we should separate those two. Um, I've always believed that uh, there should be a, a very rigid separation between church and state, but I don't believe there should be a separation between our faith and our, uh, our policies. And so long as they are, 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 as we hold true, I think we'll guide ourselves through that, those difficult decisions as best you can. Sometimes you are left with very, very difficult decisions and you you know, as God gives you wisdom, you, you make the best that you can, make the best decisions that you can. You know, I, I do think that I, I, should, I, I shouldn't even render an opinion about like a, a border wall just because I, I don't fully understand the pains and the pressures of having a wall or not having a wall, what something costs, what, you know, is there a way to do it with patrol? I, I have no idea. Um, I, I do think it's important for any sovereign state to um, have its people and its representatives vote on a um, system that allows uh, safe and appropriate legal immigration to occur, immigration, uh, in-migration and ex-migration. Um, uh, but, uh, and to do that, you need to have a control around who can be there and, and who cannot be there, how that happens. I, I'm, I'm not, 
a pro at describing. This is the Bold Idea Podcast. Well, I mean, this is probably a good time to take a pause from this episode and thank our listeners who've supported the Bold Idea Podcast. You are the reason we exist. This is a nonprofit. That means we don't make profit off of doing this. This costs money. So if you're the people out there that are supporting us and donating to us, you're the reason that we've been able to do this for over a year. And we'd love to be able to do this for another year or two and bring on more amazing guests. So we would love your support. If you feel so led, just go to boldideapodcast.com forward slash donate. And thank you again. Well, let's talk about you, John. Yeah. You, uh, you came to the American Refugee Committee, what, a year and a half ago? Is that right? Yeah, exactly. What were you doing before that? Um, I had spent uh, um, about, uh, oh gosh, almost 35 years in commercial real estate and construction. Uh, the last 15 years of that was at uh, uh, Target Corporation. And... Um, uh, at the age of 52, I had a chance to take early, uh, uh, early retirement. And it's something that, um, that, that happened in May, uh, of 2014. And in about November of 2013, I must've come home one too many times <laughs> with, uh, ir- an irritated voice or, or swagger. <laughs> and my wife just looks at me and she says, why, why don't, why don't you just quit? And I said, well, I've never quit anything in my life. I'm not going to quit. I'm not a quitter. You know? <laughs> but I did promise her uh, that I would pray about it. And I still got the line in my prayer journal uh, from that uh, that next day or two whenever I, I got to it and began to pray and um, didn't realize that the opportunity would present itself uh, in May of the following year, but it did. And, um, and I took it and, uh, initially I thought, well, I guess, you know, American dream 52, I can retire early, been blessed. Um, uh, great. And I did that for about four months and uh-huh. I was getting bored and my wife was going crazy. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, my, uh, I had a, 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 uh, industrial psychologist that target put me together with. Um, and she said, John, you've got to understand that um, you hanging around at home, it's like it's like you were still working at Target, and Lisa just started showing up at the office every day, <laughs> and um, just just quietly sitting in the corner. And when you hung up the phone, she looked at you and said, "So who was that? Oh, what'd you talk about? Oh, what are you doing with them? Oh, can I help?" <laughs> you, you're getting ready to leave for a meeting. Oh, can I come with you? Oh, no, no, that's okay. What are you going to talk about? Oh, who's that with? Oh, that's interesting. You know and. <laughs> You, you can imagine the, the, the claustrophobic feel that it would be. And she said, yeah. that's what you're doing to your wife. And I'm like, okay, we got to fix this. So, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I, started, uh, um, I started doing some uh, real estate investment on my own, basically the same thing, just on a much smaller scale that I've been doing all my career. I met a, a guy named Ward Brem, a uh, local uh, 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 successful businessman yeah, here in the Twin Cities. We had him on the podcast here. Okay, yeah, there you go. And... Uh, and 
Ward was having some problems uh, with a uh, some construction and real estate problems with a project he was involved in through ARC over in the Congo, uh, building a clinic. And I said, well, you, you want some help? And he said, like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, that's kind of what I do. And he said, well, that'd be great. Long story short, after about six months, we kind of got that uh, back on a track that was replicable so that you could expand it and franchise it and so forth. And through that process, I met Daniel, our CEO, and um, Daniel said to me at the end of that, um, well, why don't you come do this full time? And I said, Daniel, you got, you got the wrong guy. Um, I'm, I don't know anything about the humanitarian space. And um, he's a uh, really terrific guy, uh, Australian. And um, he said, uh, John, I've got hundreds of people around you. They know everything about the humanitarian space. So I'm hoping you might bring me something different. And, uh, wow, well done. Yeah. Kudos. And uh, yeah, and, and, and that's kind of the way it's been. And so he has, uh, he has tolerated my naive questions, and, uh, which have been endless. Um, he has brought me along. Uh, uh, and uh, hopefully, you know, uh, one of these days I'll be in a position to try to uh, pay back the, uh, the, uh, the favor that he's done me. It's, oh, been a, it's been an unbelievable ride. So. What's been the most surprising thing you've discovered, maybe that you hadn't expected to to see? Uh, everything is so complicated. It's just so hard. And as soon as you think you've got something figured out and the right way to do something, you find out that in doing that, it's actually going to create all these problems uh, over here. And you kind of take one step forward, five backwards. And you're like, okay, so that doesn't work. And and it's it's just really really difficult uh, to find sustainable uh, solutions to dealing with a refugee crisis. That you know, at the end of the day, as as uh, as a Jesus follower, you know, and a, um, and a believer, you kind of go, well, this is Satan's kingdom, so this, this is never going to get solved. Uh, you know, this side of heaven, and so that's just the reality that you're in. And so you just try to do the best you can. You know, there isn't, there isn't a, there isn't a magic solution. There isn't a fix. You just, you just try to do the best you can. I, you guys, um, have, it's an old and tired story, but I've really kind of hung on to it and it's been, it's meant something much more to me, but the, the old, uh, parable of the guy walking down the beach with a friend and there's a bunch of starfish all over the place. Mm-hmm. You guys know that one? I don't. Larry clearly does. Okay. I never know well, any of these, so don't. It's just two guys walking along a beach, and for some reason the tide has gone out early, and it has stranded literally thousands of these starfish. They're kind of crawling all over each other, and they're going to die because the tide is not going to come back in in time to save them. It's you know, a hot, sunny afternoon, and they're just going to fry. And uh, so these two guys are walking along, and about every four or five steps, uh, one of the guys bends over, picks up a starfish, and whips it out into the ocean. And, you know, five or six steps, the same guy bends over, picks another one up. And after doing this 10 or 12 times, the other guy who is not throwing the fish back says, what, what are you doing? You, it's, it's a complete waste of time. You can't possibly make a difference. And he bends over. And he picks up one more and throws it. And he said, I made a difference for that one. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that that has been a huge motivator for me. You know, I'm not, I'm not called to solve the crisis for 70 million people, but you know, there's a little chunk of them there that I have a chance to help. And I'm just going to do the best job I can trying to help them. Yeah, that's right. I think Martha Teresa said, if you can't feed a hundred, feed one. Mm. And uh, that, you know, that's the same idea. It did make Mm. a difference for that one. And yeah, I love that mission. So how has it changed you, John, when you look at all of the stuff that you have, the skills you acquired through Target and your other real estate dealings and all the stuff that you've done, and then you apply them here, how, how has this role affected you? Hmm. Um, well, it certainly changes your perspective on what's important, you know, um, it, uh, it has helped you see that while the world's a very, very big place, it's really not that big. You know, you can, you can get to the furthest corners of it on a couple of flights in about 16 hours and, and you're in a completely different world. And it, it's, it's almost like you've just transported yourself back in time 100 years someplace or or that you've transported yourself into an alternative universe, or you're on a different planet. It's just, it's so fundamentally different than what we enjoy here. I mean, just the simplest things that we take for granted, the rule of law, you know, that people are going to live up to a contract, that they are going to treat people with respect, that, you know, and of course, you know, even in America, that doesn't always happen, but there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's sort of this undercarriage that supports a a process, a thought, a belief that that's the way people are going to behave. Yeah, the idea you, of fairness, right? It's right. Yeah, and you you go you go to these other places, and it's just like, well, Al Shabab is just the Red Rider bad guy outlaw gang from the West in, in the eighteen seventies. That's all they are. They're riding around in vehicles with machine guns, and back then they were on horseback with six shooters. But that's all they are. And they're going into, you know, towns and they are raping and pillaging. It's the same people. They're just doing it in a different place, in a different time, and in a different way. You just can't get a feel for it until you've gone over there and experienced it and seen it and lived in it a little bit. Well, perhaps one of our listeners might be wondering and and being touched by this idea of 65, 70 million people being affected by displacement and Wondering how do they, what steps should they take? What, what do you recommend for them? Um, that's a good question. Um, the, uh, we certainly have uh, here at the American Refugee Committee, um, uh, we have something called a volunteer night um, that actually opens up people to kind of really who we are and what we do and how we do it. So if you're in the Twin Cities or the Upper Midwest and want to avail yourself to that kind of a thing, I would highly recommend it. Um, the, uh, and you can get to our website and, uh, um, and, and there's uh, signups uh, available there for you. But that would be one thing. Um, if you are a person of faith um, and you have a faith community that you're a part of, my bet would be that there have that there are missionaries, that there are mission boards, there are mission organizations that are dealing with all of this stuff, but it doesn't get talked about 
in great detail very often uh, in our in our churches uh, here. Um, and um, that's that's a great avenue. Um, there are all kinds of organizations that offer child sponsorship opportunities. You know, World Vision's a great one. My wife and I have done that for several years. Um, and if you really exercise your prerogatives on really getting to know those children through those communications, um, you can start to really get a flavor for what their their life is like and what they have to deal with. So. It, if you be intentional, it's it's not about picking up a book. It's not about um, subscribing to The Economist or you know watching NPR uh, uh, um, on a regular basis. It's those, not that those are bad things, but that's not going to get your heart engaged uh, the way that befriending either a person or actually a refugee themselves um, is going to get you. Yeah, and you shouldn't expect that you'd get a call from the airport that you have children to pick up. Yeah, that, no, you don't want to do that. It's a different, it's different today. We do things differently. All right, well, how can our listeners find out more about the ARC and, um, and perhaps yourself? Sure. Um, well, uh, I'm uh, always available for questions. I try to make myself pretty available. Uh, my email is uh, j-o-h-n-g at arcrelief.org. Our website is uh, www.arcrelief.org. Either one of those things can give you background information, or if you want to reach out to me directly, happy to help in any way I can. That's terrific, John. Well, we always like to ask our guests, what's the next bold idea for them? The next bold idea is um, I uh, have a process in mind that could... Uh, vault us into a position of building about, um, I think I can probably get through between 300 and $500 million a year of housing around the world for poor people that gets them out of renting and into home ownership, which essentially creates a scenario uh, for family wealth building, much like the GI Bill did when our soldiers returned from World War II. Well, I think that definitely qualifies as a bold idea, John. Yeah. You, got the, wow. yeah. you got that one for sure. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be praying for the success yeah, thank of that. You. And uh, Appreciate just it. so glad you were able to join us on today's show. Honored again to have been asked. I, uh, I really appreciate what you guys are all about, what you're doing, and uh, thanks for telling the story. Oh, you bet. And thank you, John. What a good interview with John, huh? Loved it. I love when he got emotional. That was my favorite part. Because, all right, full transparency, certain people in nonprofit, there's there's always that piece of my cynical side. I wonder, you just wanted to do nonprofit because you didn't want to do corporate anymore? Uh, do you actually care? Yeah. You know, and like, I don't assume that about everyone. I can't, I just can't help that that cynical side of me thinks that. And just to see that part of him come out, it's like you take, you just took every piece of doubt, every piece of cynicism, and you just crumbled it and shattered it and just showed your heart in, in one little glimpse of just you thinking about a certain individual it just broke you and it broke me in the process. And that was awesome. I absolutely loved it. You can tell this is, he's doing exactly what he needs to be doing. And he loves doing it. Yeah. Th- there's a big difference between people who are, as you said, doing nonprofit work um, because it's a job. Yeah. <laughs> and, and those who are doing it because it's a calling. Yeah. 
And uh, I think, you know, you and I both feel very strongly that we should be pursuing our callings, no matter whether it's vocational uh, in uh, a corporate setting or in a nonprofit setting or government or whatever it's in, education, whatever God calls you to, you know, do it with all your heart. Right. And uh, I love that John showed his heart there in this episode. I don't think you could help it. That that was the best part. (laughs) Yeah. You know, there are times when uh, we have our guests and they say something that uh, just causes a little speed bump, you know, Mm. and uh, there was one for me that he, that stood out and he, he just said, evil has a place in this world. Oh, and I didn't even catch that. Wow. It just really kind of hit me because it's kind of one of those things that I know that we all see things, we get the news stories and because we have uh, perhaps been so jaded and he talked about that, that Mm -hmm. the news cycle looks for the sensational and underemphasizes the, the almost talking and talking about tragedy underemphasizes the joy. Like he said, some of the kids express and it's that, it's that kind of joy and engagement that causes you to develop a heart for them, yeah, right? Yeah, it's not just the crisis. Mm-hmm. There's just the it's the humanness of it and all of the emotions, the whole spectrum of emotion. Yeah, and when he said, you know, evil has a place in this world, I just got this this sense of this. It, there's this entrenchment, you know. Then there's these places in the world where, you know, the American Refugee Committee and others are going where there's the most vulnerable people. Mm. That, uh, that they can't fend for themselves. Right. And this is one of the things as believers that we're to do is to, you know, be uh, uh, a source of strength for the powerless. Yeah. And I think we may have lost a lot of that in our own comfort. It's easy to not be bold in that way. It's easier to stay inside of our comfort zone and to even be exposed to this crisis. I had no idea, I mean, until we we're preparing for the show that 65 to 70 million, million people yeah. are affected by this. Yeah. I it's, had no idea. It's a crazy thing. It's a crazy, crazy thing. Cause I, I, I know, I, I know what that experience is like. I, I, I get the refugee thing and, uh, and, and, and it's not, I get it. Like I sympathize. I was one, right? right. Like you mentioned well, you that. You said I, you are one. Yeah. Like I, I, can't I be was. yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, well, I went through the experience. I right. remain a refugee, but I went through the refugee experience, right? Like fleeing on foot across the desert, climbing a mountain, trying to avoid military, trying to avoid execution and torture, living in, you know, slum level type uh, poverty level type uh, scenarios and trying to find a way to get into a country that will accept you. You know, it, it's, it's a daunting uh, task. It's a, it's a, it's a scenario that you don't know how it's going to play out. You, yes. you, you can't predict it. And the whole time you're trying to keep your family together and make them feel like, especially me as a child, I, I know what my parents had to do for me to not realize we're waiting for something. Right. It's, it's a daunting task for the adults. I think kids can just, they just survive anywhere. You know, as long as they got mom and dad, it's all good. But the adults, the level of burden and the responsibility that's on them is so daunting that you don't even know how to even break that down for anyone to fully grasp 
the struggle, the pain, the sacrifice, the suffering, the grief, and all that goes into it, but they can't show it, right? Yeah. And it, so it's like you almost have to eat all of that just so you can make your kids strong through the process. Not and you to, watched your parents do that. Yeah. And, uh, and I mean, I still remember the prayers of my parents, right? My parents aren't the type of people who pray, you know, g- these random prayers, uh, like, and, and because my, my, fa- I'm Christian, but my family's Baha'i in the Baha'i faith, there's, there's written prayers that they uh, often read or memorize or whatever. Right. So what I know of my parents praying were these written prayers, these recantation or incantations of prayers or whatever. But I remember when we were crossing the desert and there was military nearby and we thought there's a possibility that we could get caught. That was the first time I ever remember my dad just praying, like not re- reciting that. It was just, it was just him praying. And all I remember him saying is God, not like this. Mm. Don't let my family die like this. Mm. Right. That's what I, what I kept and, hit, and I'm tied to his back. And so it's like, it's just, it's a really intense process. And then when you get through the danger zone and then you end up somewhere where you feel safe, but now What? okay, I'm not, I'm not going to get killed, but am I still going to die? Cause I don't have food. Cause I don't have water. Right. Cause I don't have health. I don't have whatever. Right. It's it, this thing that these guys are involved in that John is involved in. It's bigger than it ever was before. And it's more confusing and more complex. And there's more people involved and there's more opinions than ever before than when I was a refugee. And the fact that these guys are as committed to it as they are. I, I it, for me, it's, it's hope. Uh, for me, it's a, it's a representation of God's heart. If for me, it's a representation of what it looks like to fight the impossible fight and answer the impossible call. And regardless of knowing if you can win or not, that you're still going to go to the, go to the front lines of this war and fight it. Yeah. It seems like those who are refugees and going through those crises are propelled forward out of hope, but there's so many unknowns. They just know that what they are leaving has to be worse than what they are going to. Well, and that's so. the hope. Yep. You know, that 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 what they're leaving behind is is worse, you know, unless they wouldn't flee it. Yeah. Right. And so organizations like ARC are kind of trying to stand in the gap and give them that. I love in their on their website they say we help people survive conflict and crisis and rebuild lives of dignity, health, security, and self sufficiency. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that uh bold idea of that housing project that uh, John talked about huge certainly fits in that well self-sufficiency probably all those categories but um what a what a wonderful bold mission and I think really a good model for us to think about and one of the things that struck me too as I was listening to John and you know he had the same kind of experience of transformation as Ward did. And, mm-hmm. and it's interesting, you know, because he brought Ward up as yeah. his po- source of transformation, right? Yeah. But it's that personal exposure mm-hmm. that creates the empathy which causes action, mm-hmm. right? And until we are exposed and understand fully what it is that, that is going on, yeah. as long as it remains sound bites and news flashes and all the rest, it's going to get drowned out and normalized in our life. Right. But when we let the crack open up and we allow ourselves to be, to see what is happening, it gives, I think, God an opportunity to say, you know, this is what I called you into. Now, not all of us are called there, mm-hmm. to be sure. We all have our mission. Sure. But, you know, are we allowing ourselves the time and the opportunity for God to speak into our hearts in that way? Right. 
that's kind of the thing for me to right. think about. How am I allowing myself to see stuff that I hadn't seen before? Yeah. And here's the thing is I, I, I've been, I've been surrounded by so many refugees, you know, since, since I was a kid and th- there's one thing I can tell you. It's uh, that's always true. Yes. I'm using a very absolute statement by saying always. And it is from my experience. It's always true when someone is a refugee and they're in the middle of that fleeing, running, trying to escape, whatever process you want to call that. As long as they're in the, inside that process, I have yet to meet any individual that does not pray. I, I, I don't care what religion they are. I don't care what God they pray to. I have not met one that does not pray. Every single one of them are praying and they're praying for God to give them an answer, to give them a relief, to give them a hope, to give them a whatever, right? And when 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 they finally get their answer when they finally show up when they finally get their relief they want to know who brought them there mm. and the people at the front line if those people get to have that opportunity to answer that question why are you helping me and they get to take that moment to say i'm here because my god called me to you and they can, they can literally point to Jesus and say, I'm here because Jesus called me to be here for you. There, there, there's something that those people, I don't care who they are, how old they are, what religion they are, where they came from, they will never forget that name. Maybe they might forget your name, mm-hmm. but they will never forget the name that brought them there. Mm-hmm. And if you ever look back into the history of Christianity and you want to see where the biggest influx of Christian conversions happen. It happened during times where there was plagues and all of Europe was dying and families were abandoning their children and elders. And the only people were walking into those colonies, into those cities and towns and countries were the people who believed in Jesus Christ. And they would go into the, into the town while everyone else is fleeing. They would sit next to them, give them water, give them food and take care of them. They would even die with them. That was the biggest conversion to Christianity, almost all of Christian history the people that go to the front lines and proclaim the name that we think that we follow, those are the people that will follow any God at that point, you know, but like there's, but I think it's something more insignificant when we can go to the front line and, and say, no, Jesus brought me. I didn't come of my own doing. Yeah. Like if you, if you really care about leading people to God, that's one heck of a way to do it. And I just, I just utmost respect for this organization, Don, John and Daniel and all those guys that are involved. Yeah, the, well, the, certainly, you know, Jesus talked about those who know me were the ones who, who fed me, the ones who gave me home, who gave me shelter. Um, so certainly there's nothing quite like the plight of those refugees, those 65, 70 million of, us, of them to remind us. Uh, that there's a there's a desperate need out there that, yeah. that needs us. Listen, we hope that you enjoyed this podcast and our discussion with John. Uh, you can find the show notes at boldideapodcast.com slash five nine. Now that's where you'll also find links to the American Refugee Committee. Also John's email, in case you've forgotten, it'll be there. And we'd love for you to leave a comment for us or for John on the show at that uh, location, boldideapodcast.com, or uh, call our show line at 612-568-IDEA, 612-568-4332. So until next week, this is Larry Gates. And Armin Asadi. Saying so long, be blessed. You've been listening to the Bold Idea Podcast. To get our show notes sent to your inbox, visit boldideapodcast.com.